continuing in our studies in Revelation, looking today at the sixth and seventh chapters, which in our book are titled, Let Them Wait. In chapter one of Revelation, we learn that John was to write the things he had seen, both the things that are and the things which will be. In chapter twos and three, we surveyed seven literal churches on earth, which John addressed, both with condemnations and commendations. Those messages were applicable, not only to the historical church they were addressed to, but also to the church in general down through the ages. From there, we moved into the fourth and fifth chapters. And John's view was changed from an earthly viewpoint to a heavenly viewpoint. He moves from the things he has seen and the things that are to the things that will be. Even as John was transported from earth to heaven, so too the church will be transported or raptured and taken into heaven. In chapter 4, the era of the church is completed on earth and the bride of Christ is now in heaven. The dead in Christ have been reunited with their bodies and the living believers changed in an instant, given new heavenly bodies. In these chapters, he describes the beauty of heaven and the worship we will one day experience. We see the throne of God and the 24 elders casting down their crowns, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the root of that worship was found in the fact that Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain to deliver us from sin and death, was the only one who could reclaim the title deed to our fallen planet. And so, while well, we see the joy and the worship of God's people in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, it is also a moment that marks the coming wrath and judgment of God on earth. As we begin chapters 6 through 19, we see God's justice and judgment being served to those who remain on planet earth. Justice today seems to be a popular theme. Many people raise the banner for what they call social justice. But these movements are simply man-centered calls for justice, with the idea of making everyone equal. But in Revelation, God's justice, real justice, is identifying the righteous versus those who have rejected God's love and plan for salvation through Jesus. To the non-believer, in rebellion against God, true justice is going to be a bitter experience. Chapter 6 introduces the first set of judgments to fall upon those people left behind in the rapture and facing the great tribulation. The judgments begin with seven seals, or in chapters 6 and 7. These are followed by a set of seven trumpet judgments, which we'll read about in chapters 8 and 9. And they are followed by seven bold judgments, which is talked about in chapter 16. But while justice and judgment are beginning to fall, we shall also see that mercy will once again be extended to those on earth during this time. In fact, we're going to read about one of the greatest revivals of all time. For God, who is just and righteous in meeting out punishment, also demonstrates his love for mankind as he extends one more offering of grace. As the scriptures tell us, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. With the bride of Christ, his church now in heaven, we see God's focus is back on finishing his plan for his chosen people, Israel. The book of Daniel, chapter 9, 
provides a timeline of God's plan for the Jewish people. Daniel 9, verse 24, reads this way. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. You see, God doesn't leave his business unfinished. He will deal with Israel's transgressions and sins and iniquities, and he will bring the willing into everlasting righteousness and complete his prophesied mission. In Daniel's prophetic outlook in chapter 9, he reveals that 69 of the 70 weeks are better understood as 69 seven-year periods determined to fall on Israel would occur prior to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. That block of time was fulfilled with the birth and death of Jesus as prophesied by Daniel. And Jesus ushered in the church age at that time, where the focus of our Lord was for a time no longer upon Israel, but upon those individuals that would make up his church, his bride. With his bride now in heaven, chapter 6 of Revelation, the focus of our Heavenly Father is back upon Israel to complete that final 70th week or 70th seven-year period. It is this seven-year period we now know as the Great Tribulation. This tribulation period begins with a seven seals on a scroll and the Lamb, the only one able to break the seal. The first of these seven seals are identified by horses and riders. There's a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a pale green horse. They've come to be known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now the first rider sits upon a white horse, carrying a bow and a crown upon his head. At first glance, it could be thought that this is Jesus, but upon closer examination, it is not Christ, but the Antichrist. A better way of understanding Antichrist is not to hear it as against Christ, but it should be thought of instead of Christ. In other words, this rider is a counterfeit Christ. And while it says he rides to win battles and gain victories, what he's actually doing is rallying demonic forces about to be unleashed on the earth. He comes onto the scene looking as if he'll bring peace to the earth, but what follows is nothing but war and death and sorrow. As Pastor Greg has said many times, as believers, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. For believers, the coming tribulation is not our focus. The rapture is. And by this time in Revelation, that's already occurred. We will not be on earth when the Antichrist appears. However, many who are not believers today will be fooled by this rider on a white horse. On my first trip to Israel, we went to a museum called the Temple Institute. It's there as sort of a museum uh, to tell the story of the Jewish people and of the temple in which they've worshipped God for centuries. It was this very same temple in the shadow of which Jesus did much of his earthly ministry. And on one day he told his disciples that that temple would be destroyed. It was originally built by Solomon. It was destroyed, as Jesus predicted, in 70 AD by the Romans. Over the centuries, however, the hope of Israel was to see that temple rebuilt one day. Well, at the moment, on that very same site, sits another shrine, the sacred worship place for Muslims called the Dome of the Rock. 
Now, as we took this tour, the young woman who was leading it explained that all of the utensils needed to reinstate the animal sacrifices in the temple, the menorahs, the basins, and all the other artifacts, all were being assembled today and built according to exact biblical standards. And all of this is being done in preparation for the day the Jewish people believe they will once again worship on this holy site in a new temple where animal sacrifice will once again atone for their sins. So we asked this young woman how she thought it would be possible to remove the Dome of the Rock, a holy site to Muslims, so that the temple could be rebuilt. What she said next made the hair on my neck stand up straight. She said, We just believe there will be a time of world peace when all the religions come together to worship at one place. Her hope, she was saying, was that there will one day be a movement or maybe a leader who could barter a peaceful arrangement among world religions, clearing the way for a new temple. And without realizing it, she was telling us they were preparing for the Antichrist, the very same one who was riding on a white horse. Now the next horse, the red horse, depicts a time of war and slaughter everywhere, we're told. Peace does not last long as upheaval all over the world begins. And this red horse is followed by a third horse, the black horse. And this horse represents economic disasters. We're told a loaf of bread will cost as much as a day's wage, and a worldwide economic collapse begins. Then the fourth horse and its rider. This horse is described as pale green. It's the color of death and the grave. When this seal is opened, nearly a fourth Get it, a fourth of the whole world is killed by war and famine and pestilence. All of this is just the beginning of the Great Tribulation period. And after these first four seals are broken, something great happens. God's mercy once again is put on display. As the fifth seal is broken, we see under the altar all the souls who've been martyred for their faith during this time of tribulation. You see, there'll be those who were not taken in the rapture that do come to believe in Jesus during this time. But because of their belief in Christ, they will be martyred. These faithful martyrs cry out for vengeance to the Lord. They say, how long before you judge these people, Lord? They're asking God to avenge their murder. But they are given white robes and told to rest a little longer, as there are still more who are yet to believe and are yet to be martyred. But as these martyred souls cry out to God, avenge us, the sixth seal is opened and reveals those remaining in the world crying out, hide us. So one group is saying, avenge us. The other group is saying, hide us. Why? Because at the unleashing of the sixth seal, we're told great catastrophic events fall upon the earth. Earthquakes, volcanoes, meteors, etc. Mountains and islands are moved from their foundations. It's a time of great natural disasters, the likes of which the world has never seen before. They cause such fear that the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, and the powerful cry out for hiding places among the caves and the rocks. These very people who are persecuting and murdering God's people are now running for their own lives. 
And then as chapter 7 opens, it introduces a wonderful pause in the judgments that are being meted out. We see four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds from the earth and the sea. An angel appears to them saying, wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed a seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And so a pause ensues. The catastrophes occurring on earth cease while 144,000 Jewish believers are sealed by God, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel. The fact that they are identified as servants of God is an indicator that they are carrying forth the message of the gospel during this time. This army of evangelists are bringing a message of hope amid the death and destruction of the tribulation days. The result of their work is perhaps the greatest revival our world has ever seen. While the Antichrist is doing all he can to usher people into perdition, these faithful servants, empowered by the Holy Spirit, lead men and women to faith by the thousands. In fact, verse 9 declares it to be a number so great, it's too many to be counted. It's a beautiful sight as every tribe and nation all around the world are given white robes and palm branches, and they are destined to stand before his throne day and night. These same people who had rejected Christ prior to the rapture, now embracing Christ as their Savior, even in the face of death. And they are told this as the chapter ends. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun, for the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You know, this is the heart of God, isn't it? To save lost and dying people. And that should be our heart as well. No one, no matter how many times they've rejected Christ, is out of reach. God never gives up on them, even as he's never given up on us. You know, you might think about a person you know today, someone that you think is lost and beyond reach. He is not. Maybe somebody you've prayed for for years, thinking it'll never happen. It can happen. And perhaps God can use you and use me to be like one of those 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams, to bring the gospel to this hurting and dying world. And so I'd like to close our time with a prayer that God would empower us and strengthen us for that work. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would use us as vessels to communicate your gospel to this lost and dying world. Father, we thank you that you've given us the power of the Holy Spirit to give us boldness to reach those who are around us. We think of those people, even now, that perhaps have rejected the gospel or never responded. And Lord, perhaps we're thinking they never will, but God, you can reach them. So would you use us, Lord? Will you give us the boldness to be your uh, uh, evangelists here on this earth? And Lord, may we see you work powerfully uh, through us. So we commit uh, ourselves to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.